or November 22nd, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 699. I kept the receipts. You kept the scarf. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are, uh, I don't know what, kicking back, putting a vinyl record on the, uh, on the old vinyl record player and, uh, listening to the smooth sounds of, of retro, retro goodness. You know, uh, here's what happened. This is, uh, this is the episode before the 700th episode. This is episode 699. And for 699, we wanted to change it up a little bit. We haven't done any music in a while. In fact, the last music show I remember us doing is the one where we, as a bunch of clueless old people, as a bunch of clueless elder millennials or Generation X members, whatever, wherever you feel, however you identify, uh, on the generational, uh, the, the veneration, the generation the veneration, the venerated generational taint that we all uh, find ourselves uh, splayed out across. Um, the uh, I wonder if we are. Um uh, I'm not even going to delve further down that, down that vein. But the, um, listen, I, uh, where, wherever we find ourselves, we as olds were, uh, reacting to the current, the current top 10 songs on the Billboard Hot 100. And that, that's the last music show that I recall us, us doing. So, you know, there was what? another one more recently, Matt, which oh, was us, uh, reacting to the latest update to the Rolling Stone top 500 listing oh that's a good point kind of going to town on like you know pulling out the long knives for that one so uh in this one well we did uh so we did 10 different songs right then we did 500 albums uh in this episode we are going to do 1000 separate albums of music (laughs) we're we're going to review them 20 seconds at a time it's still going to take three hours so everyone buckle it no uh we're we're actually going back we're going back to uh to where we as olds uh feel more comfortable that's that's in the 70s um you know because uh it represents a comforting time before we were born and so uh, everything was fine uh, back then, everything <laughs> that, that was fine. That continues to mislead 70s. our listeners about the subject of our podcast <laughs> in the introduction to the podcast. It's, I have more faith in them than you do. <laughs> I'm just trying to make things easy. Life is hard enough. Nah, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Um, I just believe that I just believe that they that they can get it. I am that rather. I am the uh, chief misleader on the overthinking <laughs> <laughs> podcast. The, misleader, yeah, uh, yeah. The, I'm the great misleader. There you go. And uh, I am joined by my good friends Matthew. Blinky. Hey, Matt, how are you? I am not feeling 22, but still pretty good. Uh, a little hint in there. Uh, Pete Fenzel, how are you? You know, I'm smoking out the window, buddy. <laughs> that's, that's great. Good thing you no longer live in a basement apartment with a, a stack of root beer, a pyramid, a great pyramid of root beer cans in the, in the corner. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hey, I'm actually vaping my jewel out the window. <laughs> Is that? Anachronistic is what that is. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. Well, uh, we, so we're doing a music episode, um, just to kind of change it up before the, before the big, uh, star studded, uh, 700. <laughs> 700 episode um starring uh starring uh tilda swinton 
um, uh, starring all the actors who work are going to be on the next episode of, of Overthinking It. Uh, but uh, Matt uh, Belinky, you had an idea for uh, what we should do on this episode. I think you you made an observation about some albums that were out there in the popular culture. So why don't you uh, set the table for us? What did you notice and uh, what intrigued you about it? So. On the 12th of November, there were two albums that got released. They were probably the two biggest albums in pop culture that week. Uh, and the first was uh, the debut album of Silk Sonic, which is a super group consisting of uh, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, both Grammy award-winning artists, um, who have combined it to do it, – it's a – here's the thing. So, like, it, not, to, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but, like, way back in the day – I remember discussing the South Park movie, right? The South Park, uh, bigger, longer, uncut movie. And and my sort of confusion, the, the sort of mental trouble I had wrapping my little brain around it because it's it's clearly supposed to be a parody of musicals. There are specific numbers that are supposed to be a parody of Disney and a specific number that's a parody of Les Miserables. But it, you know, so so it's supposed to be funny and it's supposed to be like, how you know look how dopey these things are but it also is clearly a love letter to musicals by people who love musicals executed by very musically talented people and so and and it itself that soundtrack is full of tremendous songs that hold up very well i think it oh sorry it very famously did not win the oscar that year because the phil collins song beat it which they they then uh went and made the timmy episode of south park to um now I'm really going down the rabbit hole. But anyway, my my point is that like I feel like Silk Sonic falls into that tradition where it's it's clearly supposed to be somewhat of a joke, but it also is supposed to be like serious music that they're uh, very talented artists are doing their very best at. And I I would cat I would put it along with things like um the darkness or tenacious D where it's like it's supposed to be funny, but it also is legitimately good music. Um. But then at the, the same day, uh, there was the Taylor Swift album, Red, Taylor's version, which is a sort of redux of uh, her second studio album, I believe, from 2012. And, I mean, at the surface level, this is a pure mercenary business move, right? Because she does not own the masters of the original recordings. And so she has decided that as opposed to letting i think it's scooter braun and his company that bought up the rights to the masters and letting him enjoy the royalties for all of her old hits she's going to re-record uh well i mean we can discuss whether they are in fact note by node facsimiles of the originals and then those are versions that she will own and she will heavily lean on let's you know certainly like if you're like a major movie studio and you want to use a taylor swift in the movie she will notice if you decide to use the 2012 version as opposed to the the re-record um but it's not just that there's also a, a large amount of original material so basically the deal is that these are two albums that have complicated relationships to the past uh, you know, contemporary artists that are revisiting older music and and for different reasons and in different ways. So three three albums looking back 
at the at the past, but uh, in in particular ways. There's so oh, some, we haven't we haven't oh, mentioned Sorry, you did you did two. Okay, sorry. I thought that was the summary. What's number three? Be, Matt? There might be a third one that we could that we could add to that, which was a, a slightly uh, ruins the conceit because it was released a week before. But on a, a, the fifth of November, ABBA came out of a forty-something year hiatus to release an album of brand new music. Um, and I believe they are going on some kind of virtual holographic tour. Um, so that's something to look forward to. That's, that's your cyberpunk mama, feature. Mama Mia, here they go yeah. again. It, it is perhaps uh, not understood as a trio, but rather as a duo. And then a third counterexample in that two of them are complicated works that have a fraught relationship with history. And the third one is just history. It's just old people <laughs> doing the thing that they've always been doing. I mean, I shouldn't say it that much, but it's like the album, the, the Alba, ABBA album may elicit a similar response from us, but it's a very different beast. So I'm comfortable with the idea that these two, these two other albums exist in a coincidental dialogue with each other. And I'm, I I, and I'm comfortable calling it the album rather than the album. <laughs> So here's the deal. I, I I listened to a little bit of the Taylor Swift album, but I didn't do – what I really wanted to do was sort of play the tracks, the original 2012 tracks, um, like alongside the new versions to see if there was any discernible difference. Because like to, to my non – what do you call a Taylor Swift fan? Are they Swifties? I believe they are Swifties, yes. Yeah, to my non-Swifty ears, uh, the new versions sound like the old versions. Like those are the songs that I remember from 2012. Uh, but but those of you who are delved in a little deeper, or maybe you know, maybe had the original earworms a little deeper in your brain. What did you think? Well, it's not. So, I mean, that's the point, though, right? That's that's the point of it. Uh, anyway, sorry, Mark. I, I didn't mean. Yeah, to it, is, it is. It is by and large the point to to make them more or less sonically indistinguishable, at least like at the surface level now, like, um, you know, I, and I you would, you would read... say that they succeeded. Like they do, they do seem, sure. unless you're really comparing both of them, that they yeah. did a pretty good job of, re- now, you know, her voice hasn't changed a lot in the last nine years. It's changed a little bit. Certainly. Um, I think for the better, um, the, 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 the main track that is garnering most of the attention, right. Um, what's it? The all too well, right. Um, if you listen to it closely, the guitar mixes are different. I think they actually tone down, um, uh, some of the electric guitar. I think there's a lot of what you're, what you're getting is an artist who is just revisiting a prior work. Um, you know, it, fixing the very small detail things that probably only they are annoyed. I mean, like extreme example, of this would be George Lucas, you know, tweaking Star Wars for a special edition. Um, but uh, from what I understand, like this is not that uncommon of a thing. Like if Taylor Swift owned the, her master recordings, then you know she would have done a re-release and like you know gone into the studio and you know tweaked the the dials and the mixing booth and emphasize some things and not emphasize others. Um, so there is that. I think that there's a little bit of like a. Uh, um, that's done not just for Taylor Swift, but also for the diehard fans to give people something uh, to hunt for. Um, the broader thing, though, is like kind of generally zoom out for a second in terms of what a large driving force for pop music generally is, is give people the same thing that they had before, but just a little bit different. Um, and we can talk about how that applies to Silk Sonic as well. Um, but, you know, the, the the idea being that, you know, you want to give people something that they're comfortable with, um, but make it a little bit novel so that it drives interest in it. Um, but I, now, I like, think that's you know, not, uh, yep. sorry, Mark, you didn't, I, I didn't no, mean okay. to stop that, that you before point, you yeah. got the chance to get your point out, but I think that, I think that misses it too. To me, this is 100% a business move 
towards the music business and not a business move towards the audience in the way of like, give them, give them the same and a little bit, a little bit different. Like, I don't, I don't think we'll get red Taylor's version, version, Taylor's, Taylor's version, version. I don't think we'll get that, uh, in another 10, 10 years, right? Like there's this sort of, there's this, uh, history. I, I'm not, you know, I, the only kind of Swifty I am is a Jonathan Swifty. Uh, just love me some modest proposal in Gulliver's Travels. Love me the Anglo Irish satirist Jonathan Swift. But the, uh, you know, um, I, I know enough about it to know that there, there was a sale when her record label that she initially signed with stopped being a record label or went out of business or something, there was a sale of her master recordings, which is different from the publishing, which I believe she still controls. But the the masters were owned by the the actual recordings, right? The actual instances of the of the songs that were recorded on the original albums were owned by and snapped up by this scooter brawn led conglomerate. And she entered into negotiations with them because she wanted to um she wanted to buy them and own them herself uh, own them herself and that that uh, uh this broke down for whatever reason um you know now they got bad blood it's a really big problem but now they got now they got bad blood her her and scooter prawn and as essentially a business move what she said was okay if you won't let me buy this asset from you I'll make your asset worthless. And, and that's the, that was the, uh, that was the kind of the impetus behind this whole multi-year project of, of Taylor's versions, right? Like yeah, yeah, she's, yeah. that's de- not for dispute, right? That is like very much on the record. Yeah. And she's like devaluing, devaluing the, you know, hundred, multi hundred million dollar, uh, asset that someone else bought because, because she's, you know, uh, pissed that they wouldn't sell it to her or there, you know, there, there were, uh, uh, the allegations of sort of false dealing, I think on both sides. And, and I don't know the details of, of how it all went down. Or who says what, or or what it what it might have been, but that's like this is a just I, it struck me as like an incredibly an incredibly baller move, and uh, you know from an economic point of view, like very you know very interesting. Like she she I think early in this dispute, she said things like art is like art is rare and valuable. Um, and, and, you know, this is anyone who has, anyone who has ever looked at the uh, calendar at an improv theater will know that art is not rare. Uh, <laughs> not at all. It's perhaps medium well, if it's done in an improv theater. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, yeah, but they're, they're, they're scheduled from like 1030 in the morning with the, like the class graduation shows and, um, and, uh, you know, until two in the morning, like it's not, uh, barely, barely time to plunge out the toilets before a, another assault by by drunken college students so the um you know uh, art is art is hyper abundant especially in the age of of digital reproduction and the real power is the power to control demand and if you are you know if you are hip to the discourse uh because i am not a swifty though i live with one um if if you uh are you know hip to to the swifty discourse there is like this kind of honor thing of like we never listen we never stream a version if a taylor's version exists we have to you know stream the taylor's version you know and if uh if if i were 
you know, an advertiser or something and wanted to license a recording for a commercial or something like that, given that they're more or less equivalent, why would I run afoul of, uh, why would I run afoul of Taylor Swift, especially since she's like, um, you know, since she's, uh, uh, so fond of venting her displeasure on, you know, I don't know, Netflix shows that displease her or, or, or things like this, like the, the, uh, it's a, it's just a no brainer. So she's really controlling demand, I think is the, is the interest, is the interesting thing about this, you know, this, this particular move. But yeah, I mean, so Matt, like they're, they're not, they're the same, but they're, they're, they're meant to be substitutes. They're meant to be, uh, f- they're, they're meant to be new fungible tracts, <laughs> NFT. Yes, and it's like, okay. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about this attitude that you were saying, which is that like the fans, you know, the, the old versions are dead to us. We're only listening to the new versions out of solidarity with Taylor Swift. But I mean, like, is it like, I understand it's a business version. It's a, it's a business decision on her part, but like, how should we as fans be? Cause she's not like a struggling artist. You know what I mean? It's not like she's not struggling to put food on the table and put her kids through college. Um, you know, she is incredibly successful. She just wants to, and and I guess it's tricky because I'm not saying she doesn't deserve to own her masters and she doesn't deserve the money that comes from uh, licensing them. But it also just seems that like everybody is really rooting for her as if like, you know, she's the underdog here. Yeah. I mean, and it's she kind of is sure. Right. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's interesting. interesting. So, I mean, I would say, sorry to jump in, but I would say that, I think that one of the important dynamics here, I wanted to say something before, but we'll go back to that later because uh, we'll talk about all too well. Right. Because it's not fair to say that there's no new creative work in this whole thing. Fair right? enough. Like that's I mean, I don't understand it. You guys know this thing better than I do. I feel like I'm on the end of the Swift train here and I'm sort of barely holding on to what's going on. My sense was that there was one song that was sort of new. It's a new version of an old song that's extended and different and has a, a video and a movie associated with it. We'll talk about that later. But the main thing is that. Um, the, the relationship is gendered is the big issue, right? And, and it is, it is not just that the record company says that we own your masters, right? And therefore when, you know, Diet Pepsi wants to use a Taylor Swift song, they pay us rather than you, right? Which would be bad enough, right? And you could say, well, you know, is there not an argument for, for, uh, you know, there for there being a right and wrong in this instance, even in conflicts among rich people, right? Are we really do we really not care about the problems of rich people because they're rich? That's not observably how people tend to work, but like whatever. Anyway, putting that aside, I think the bigger issue is that is the involvement of this producer who Taylor Swift has personally identified to her fans as a bad man, right? As like, and I don't mean that flippantly. I just mean it in, in a sort of I don't understand the specific things. That he's been accused of. I don't know if they're they're open or out. I don't I don't know. I don't think he did anything to Taylor Swift like physically. But the indication is that. And what's this producer's name again, Matt? Who uh, Scooter? You, this is the Justin Bieber guy, Scooter. Yeah, Braun. yeah, Scooter Braun, and, and that that she describes him as as uh, as like narcissistic and like a, and basically kind of psychologically abusive. Sure, but like I'm, just it, I don't really think she mean. worked with him. I think that he led the conglomerate that acquired her catalog. But she attested to his personal character in yes. a very negative way. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. There was there was uh, as they say, bad blood. 
Yeah, exactly. So there is, and again, you should go to a Swifty podcast to learn the specifics of the relationship between Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun. Because of availability bias, I am going to assume that it's similar to the relationship between Kesha and Dr. Luke, even though it isn't. Um, but there is yeah, that, this That's issue. probably too far, but go, let, no, way too far, way too far. But, but consider, consider that if, if Dr. Luke and Kesha is like, there was actual really bad stuff that happened between these two people directly, right? And then, and then Scooter Braun and Taylor Swift, it's more like, oh, you're that kind of guy. You do this thing to women, right? I've, I've heard of you or seen you do it to other women. I've seen the way you treat me. Yeah, maybe you didn't like, you know, there, maybe there's not actual sexual assault. Maybe there is, I don't know. But the lack of respect, right? And, and the sort of what people would refer to as the toxicity of you, right? Is something that's recognizable as characteristic of men who seek to dominate and kind of inflict their emotional whatever the F they're doing with themselves onto women, right? Um, and so I think that in the sense that Taylor Swift is sort of an underdog against the record company, but she's it's, it's more of a feminist thing, I think. I think it's more like she as a woman has been treated rudely, and you know, which is a very, very minor way of describing it, by the men in the industry that have dealt with her, right, at the various points in her life that she's been doing this. And uh, and this is an example of that. Like, the implication is that Scooter Braun is doing this in some small manner to, like, own or dominate her, is, is the way that I sort of am reading it. Uh, and, and that and that there's that angle to it where she needs to be autonomous of him, right? Not, and, and like, well, almost with a capital H, right? Of the sort of the man that claims to yeah. own her world. Yeah, he's just, it it he's is probably a, no coincidence that, uh, Matt, you referred to the, her... Um, business maneuver as a quote unquote baller move. <laughs> yeah, he he's a uh, he. Yeah, he's a synecdoche, right? <laughs> Scooter Braun is a synecdoche. He's what do you mean by that? He's a he's a substitution of the part for the whole. It's really you know it's really a a, a it's really a music industry culture, you know that that uh, devalues or mistreats. Um, that devalues or mistreats the contributions of women and accomplishments of women and not, not, uh, necessary. And, and he is an exemplar of that, but not necessarily the extent of the problem. You know, she described him specifically as an incessant manipulative bully. Mm. Um, mm. yeah. And so I guess I, do, I just, I mean, I, I, I feel bad about doubting the sincerity of what she's doing here, but I do wonder Here's the thing. She's not donating the money to to charitable causes. She's why, going to keep the money. Yeah, but why would she? <laughs> no, but that's, I think, I think so, two issues are being conflated here. You're saying that she's doing this because Scooter Braun's a bad person. I'm saying she's doing this because she wants to own the Masters and get the money. And no matter who owned the Masters, she would be doing the same thing because she can. But it makes – she wants to to sort of wrap her – see, now I feel bad because I feel like I'm I'm, I'm doing like an – Okay, okay, I'll, okay. But like he, I'll, okay, okay I'll, I'll rescue her a little bit here. We're, we're getting at here what we talk about when we talk about red taylor's version and silk sonic is a normative discourse around quote unquote newness and originality of music right there's a part of you i think and us as well as like well taylor swift is spending all this energy um re-recording stuff and slavishly you know copying the details um of old stuff when you know shouldn't she be better spending that time and energy on creating new stuff for us likewise with Silk Sonic to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but you know, let's let's go ahead and address it, right? It's like, you know, why are these musical geniuses, some of the the most talented R and B artists of our time, um, just like you know, reproducing slavishly reproducing a sound from the '70s rather than taking their art and taking uh, music and the genre in a new direction? 
um, it would, is it fair that like that's kind of the thing that we're talking about? I, I believe, Mark, the answer is because it's awesome. <laughs> well, sure. I, yeah. No, to be clear, like you know, I, I am. I agree with you, <laughs> <laughs> by by and large. But like, let's 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 hash that out, right? Like, um, you know, is there any validity to the argument, particularly for Taylor Swift, because like they are, as we mentioned before, like you know, meant to be interchangeable with the old ones. You know, anything to that normative discourse that is like, described. Wh- you know, why why would I write a sonnet as opposed to a program for a TI ninety two calculator? Uh, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> so I guess that would be pretty retro. <laughs> so, <laughs> That'd be pretty retro too. Uh, so wait, so Mark, I want to understand because I, I was coming at this from a totally different angle. So I want to follow your angle on this. So say it one more time. Well, it's it's like you know if there's like this hand wringing uh, out there, right? The kind of poo pooing this this the instinct to poo poo or criticize Taylor and uh, and Silk Sonic for doing old stuff again rather than right. forging new territory right. using their uh, scarce time and resources and the awesomely uh, kind of unique talent that they all have right which is interesting i i mean was it taylor swift who said uh i was there you remember it i remember it all too well i don't know exactly how it goes i don't this was this was for me one of the big ironies of taylor swift's songs being the subject of this because the big one that everybody was talking about is i think largely concerned with this idea that we two people were in a relationship. I remember it one way. You say that you remember it a different way. I don't believe you. Here's the proof, right? Like, this is how I remember it. You were there too. I kept I right? kept the receipts, as the kids say. I kept say the receipts, today. right? This is Whereas how I remember Whereas you kept the it. scarf. Yes, right. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I, I mean, for me, that argument isn't persuasive. I mean, it's useful, right? And it's interesting because you do want to see the receipts. You do want to, if, if the idea is that you have to believe one of these people, then Taylor Swift has made a very strong case for why you should believe her, right, and not uh, Mysterio, the master of deception, right, um, who is, uh, who is, I believe, on the other side of this with his giant cape and his fishbowl head. Uh, you're, you're referring to the fact that what, like, these songs were written about Jake Gyllenhaal? Like, they were well, in a relationship they broke them. up. Some of them. <laughs> that would be something Some if them, they yeah. were all written about Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, some of them are about Harry Styles, right? Uh, but, but I it think is, that the big song— interesting. That, because I mean, the th- one of the things about Taylor Swift is that her music is so—it's like a diary, right? Every album is like very specific to a chapter in her life, and so her re-recording her—I'm trying to come up with like an idea of like an artist where, like, like if 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 Pitbull were to re-record an album or something, and they're all just sort of like generic, like yeah, Miami is a cool city kind of raps. Like it doesn't matter when he re-records that; it doesn't it doesn't get dated in a very personal way whereas that like these songs i mean is it one of the songs from this album 22 yeah 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 which was at right. the time so of her 23 year old version from a very of particular period of her life about very specific things and now she's re-recording them as an older woman with some distance well yeah it does like, it, it does say something it does mean something different to say I, i'm feeling 22 when you're 22 versus when you're 30 right like i'm feeling 22 god I, w- I mean what what would i not give to wake up in the morning and feel 22 you know what what would i not you know what what sacrifice would i not make you know who would i not sell who of you my treasured friends would i not sell down the river if for one day i could wake up and not have all of my body hurting all of the uh all of the time you know uh, I, I, i'm just imagining pitbull on a vacant wharf 
uh, <laughs> off the coast of Spain, just like staring as the wind whistles over his bald head and just says, in Ibiza, they got crazy. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, when a rap artist re-releases an album, they just bring on entire new remixes and new people uh, because that's sort of the lifeblood of the of the of the industry. Right. Is the kind of social relationships and the and the crews and the and the the fan bases and all that stuff. Since you mentioned 22, let me just get a, a brief thing in here since uh, we'll link to this in the show notes. But I did the whole like uh, musical Talmud like analysis of uh, that song, uh, yes. uh, more contemporaneous, contemporaneous to its release. And already at the time, it had this like really interesting time dynamic going on because it was a 23 year old version, uh, a 23 year old singing about the 20 singing to the 22 year old version of herself. It was also to a more generic 22 year old out there in the world who was more of a college graduate, which, um, you know, biographical check, Tara Swift actually didn't go to college. So she didn't have that same kind of like, uh, um, uh, kind of introduction to the adult world as the rest of us did. Um, but then now we find ourselves in, in 2021 and her singing this song and it takes on this whole other dynamic, right? Especially with the business stuff that we've been talking about here, right? You know, it's a uh, feeling 22 implies this kind of like naivete about the, the music business um, and uh, her not having the sophistication and the power that she has now. I find it really, really interesting. Like, you know, it doesn't warrant like, you know, um, does it give the whole thing like artistic merit it, 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 yeah, in, in a way um, that all too well does? Well, no, well, that's what we'll, we'll talk about all too well in a second. But um, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Check out the video. Um, we were into Taylor Swift and her the dualities of, of many things before it was cool. It was I mean, we can talk about all too well now. Pete wanted to to get to it. So that's you know, let's let's jump in because it's you know, the the story of the story of all too well is is that Taylor Swift had a summer romance that ended badly. Uh summer romance with with uh, an older partner who who um you know, I uh, she thinks didn't treat her well and it, it ended badly. And who, who hasn't had that experience? <laughs> like it's a universal um, sort of thing, but it, it, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it, I mean, did, does she have the last laugh sort of, because like you get to, you get to sort of narrativize this in in a way that, that you want to, if you're the person singing songs about it, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't expect to hear like red Jake's version, uh, <laughs> coming out anytime soon, <laughs> though it, it, it is kind of, you know, fun to think about what that, what that might be. I had um, one person, I heard, read one person say that what Jake Gyllenhaal should do is just post a selfie of himself with the scarf and then just vanish forever. <laughs> <laughs> just that would be the, that would be the Trump card uh, as well, the Trumpish Trumpy card, I'm sure because it's Jeez. trolly and misogynistic, he, but anyway, he probably um, never saw this coming. This would be like if Alanis Morissette re-recorded like you ought to know and like Dave Coulier all of a sudden like wakes up to him to a nightmare. I mean, I, I hear what you guys are. I definitely hear what you're saying. It is strange, right? It, it's well, OK, so I, I'm, it's funny because I like to think that maybe because I've had this experience, too. I feel like you guys have all had this experience, right, of like had a relationship, pretty bad, kind of feel like the other person treated me really poorly. Uh, and then at the time, I didn't really feel emotionally equipped to understand what was happening because I was in the middle of it or I was young or stupid or all of them. Right. And then in retrospect, I look back and I want to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, no, in this situation, I was treated badly. Right. I mean, I also will say I've been the other person. I'm almost positive. Right. 
In fact, I would say I've been the other person. I'm positive of it. Yeah, you know, no maybe doubt. not as bad as what Jake Gyllenhaal has done because I don't know what he did. But like, but I've definitely been the idiot, cruel, you know, belittling person in a relationship. Now, I would say I had a lot of things going on. Right. I shouldn't have been in a relationship in the first place. But that's no comfort to her. Right. Like and, and so her experience of that of me being a jerk is like totally valid. Right. Um, and I guess I guess what I'm saying is I wonder about the people who really feel like they don't have validation of that experience, because I, I that's a very foreign experience to me. The idea that nobody would nobody would listen to me or no one would believe me if I told them that I was mistreated really badly in a relationship, because I feel like everybody would believe me. Right. Like, um, yeah, it's I don't a, think like it I said, be. it's a universal it's a universal experience. Right. Like it's you, you got you don't you're not born being great at having relationships, you know, at having adult relationships anyway. Like it, it's a skill that everyone that everyone has to learn. And sometimes the road's bumpy. Sometimes the road's bumpy for all of us, you know. Uh, and that's that's, uh, you know, God, you know what I didn't do? Write a 10 minute song about it. I mean, you say that, but you're a huge Tori Amos fan. <laughs> <laughs> right? And it's, there's, there is some – okay, let me t- ask you this then, Matt. What's the difference with the music that you like and this? No, I'm, te- I'm teasing. I actually okay, think okay. it's pretty good. I, I actually yeah, okay. think that this new version of All Too Well is pretty good. I think it's, act- it's hard to sustain that kind of intensity, to kind of build and sustain that kind of intensity in, you know, in a way that's satisfying over the course of a 10-minute song. Um, and it succeeds at that really well. Though I have a, I have a, just a procedural quibble. There is a long silent pause in the middle. Uh, it comes for emotional effect. It comes at kind of a climax of the song and all the music and singing stops. And there's this, you know, uh, long period of silence. Um, and I think that shouldn't count towards the total of the 10 minutes, uh, of the, <laughs> the 10 minute version, because there's no music. There's no lyrics. It's not part of the song. It's just so I, from now on, I just, I propose that in the overthinking it headcanon, we refer to it as, uh, all too well, the nine minute and 45 second version. Should we just put in the drum fill from uh, In the Air Tonight? <laughs> drum solo. Um, yeah, no, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I would say like, to me, I, as a, as a pop song, the, I don't know, I, I heard, I, I read a reviewer, uh, when it came out who said that like, look, the short version is still a better pop song. It's tighter. Um, right. It's, it, 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 there's kind of, it's, there's less kind of looseness to it. Like there's less, uh, mess, but it's kind of the mess. It's, it's sort of a glorious mess and it, it does like, um, it, it does, uh, you know, you'd, you'd like to think that, that you would handle difficulties in a relationship more, more gracefully today, you know, than you would when you were 20. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and what it does is like really convey the idea, convey the, like the experience that the, like the contemporary experience of like going through that, you know, and, and sort of what it, what it actually feels like in the moment to someone who, to someone who is that age. And, you know, as I say, like the, the 10 minute version manages to like kind of keep that energy, um, keep that energy alive. And, the, and she performed it on, on live on SNL and, and the, you know, the reviews, at least the ones that I saw of that, 
performance were also really good. Like that it's kind of amazing that you can, you know, stretch that out that, that long in a, in a format that really rewards more like a three minute, three thirty at the outside, um, sort of, you know, uh, length. Um, but then there, there is also the, uh, the all too well, 10 minute, uh, sad girl autumn, version uh not joking about this and it is it, it's one that's maybe a little more in the aesthetic it it's one that like actually really changes the aesthetic of the song and and is a kind of remix or new version um in a way that a lot of the taylor's version stuff isn't and it's maybe more in the direction of her last two albums folklore and evermore uh which were released during the championship season and the the it's uh there's i don't know how how did you uh, describe it mark when we were talking about it like droning quarter note piano kind of thunk 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 um, um, you're, yeah. you're paraphrasing and embellishing, uh, but that is all accurate. Yeah. I won't co-sign all those statements that you just said there. I wasn't wasn't that impressed with it. I was impressed though with um, the subtle changes uh, to all too well uh, for the ten minute version, as, as well as that. Which and we should also use that as a launching pad to talk about the video itself, which is kind of its whole other thing, right? Yeah, there was so also before, yeah before, yeah. Before we get to the video, we should just kind of like cash all this out, right? There's the original all too well mm. version that was uh, you know released um, uh, back in what 2012 with the album Red. Um, there is the sad girl autumn wait, wait, wait. version. Then there's then there's all too well Taylor's version, which is a re-recording of that. Yeah, right. Which is this is basically the same thing, except like the mixing is a little bit different. The guitar is a little bit less pronounced. Um, and her voice, sad girl, her voice, sad her girl voice is autumn. ten years older, and and all mm-hmm. the things. With that, uh, sorry, you 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 do it in the order that and, that you and, want and better it. in that way. Yeah. Okay. There's the sad girl autumn version, which I thought was a joke. Like nope. sad girl autumn is like that's like a a, a, a someone. Uh, writing a lazy parody. <laughs> no, it's jo- it's uh, Mark. It's not a joke. It's a it's a lifestyle. It's you know it's mm. a it's a whole aesthetic. Mm. It is a Luke. Yeah. Um. So there's the there's the Taylor version. Um. That you just described, kind of the re- faithful re-recording, the ten minute version on the album. Um. Which has some notable sonic differences, right? It is it is um orchestrated more as a sort of uh pop uh, pop um pop rock sort of thing as opposed to a pop country sort of thing, which is important, of course, you know, it reflects Taylor's musical journey uh, from that time until now. Uh, and then that brings us then to the 14-minute short film. I think it's fair to describe it as a short film. Um, long-form music video, perhaps. Um, it says um, short film at the beginning, right? It, you're very right, it does. Yeah, that's where I'm getting that from. Um, uh, but you, you, you could also call it a long-form music video, um, where uh, the big twist for that, spoiler alert for All Too Well, Taylor's version, short film. Um, it, the interesting twist is that she has a different actor play a, like a young version of herself. And then she substitutes herself in at the end as the older version, as if to make like a very clear distinction between her young self and her old self. Um, so that was like, it, it was, it was a strong artistic move. And, and Taylor Swift, by the way, like, you know, has a history of um, these sort of, uh, interesting kind of plays with identity in her music videos, going all the way back to uh, "You Belong, You Belong with Me, You Belong to Me," um, the, the the song where she is both cheer captain and on the bleachers. Uh, uh, plays the the, the same uh, character, um, and so here she is now, like you know, d- doing a, a, something similar but different, right? Um, Wait, hold on a second. Having two is, that, is that true that in the music video for "You Belong with Me," she's playing both? the girl that the boy yeah. is actually with and the girl that she is. And uh-huh. yes, Matt, the, that's go back, go wow. I gotta watch that it. video. Yeah. 
I, I could go on, right? There's um, if I was the man, if I was a man, where she plays uh, a male version, uh, of her, not really a male yeah. version of herself, but she plays a a buffoonish, uh, male chauvinist man, like you know, with a, with a lot of prosthetic and makeup. And in season one of Westworld, she both plays herself and the self-considering version of Arnold that's been rebuilt into her identity in order to fit with how the park has been constructed, right? And the narratives over time. <laughs> and, in, and in Rick and Morty, she plays all infinite universe versions of Rick and of Morty, which is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Sorry for throwing that off. <laughs> Go for it. Yes, the, la- the thing about her, everything from the Westworld on is not actually accurate. But everything before that was true. That's, so what else is going? What, so yeah. what's going on in the video then? Um, aside from what the, the kind of the very surface level, obvious saying, you know, of course we all change as, as we get as we get older. Um, and one way to really drive that point home is to have different actors, um, play uh play, play you at at different ages. I mean, what right? is going what is going on in the video? It's you know the videos. It's it's pretty to look at. It's very atmospheric. Um, it's well acted insofar as you can see. Um what the actors are doing, but there it's not, there's no like dialogue. It's all soundtracked by the oh, there's dialogue. There's, there's, there's dialogue. an epic fight. Oh, yep. they like a row. They get at it. They get into it. They take breaks from the song. The, 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 the video is like five minutes longer than the song. Oh my goodness. But it's, uh, it's the 15 minute version. Did you watch it version. while you were, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more extensive. Man. I watched it, watched it, watched it when it came out, uh, immediately. I, as I say, I lived with a Swifty, but, um, yeah, you're right. I, uh, sorry, I was misremembering memory. Memory was not serving me correctly, but they, so yeah, I, I guess they yeah. have a, they have a fight. I think the big difference or one of the big differences is there's intertitles, right. That draw into relief certain specific things that the song says, because, and, and I only listened to this stuff much more recently, which is why I'm kind of like feeling like it's sort of fresh a little bit, which is that the song sort of feels like a Springsteen song. It's not like, I, I did not hear that song and think that it's a ir- irregular, gross indictment of a real person. It feels like a rock song about heartbreak. Throw me the keys to the car, right? Like, like this kind of stuff has been in all sorts of rock songs. This is the Taylor Swift one. It's pretty good, right? Um, but the video focuses much more on the sort of looming, threatening presence of the boyfriend and these intertitles, I think the one that really stood out for me is, are you real? Right. The idea that well, the question is posed by the song and the video that Taylor Swift has made up the mental image of the boyfriend who treated her so poorly and was so much older than her and disrespected her when she was 20 and he was like 31 or something like that. Um, and 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 then that also, I think, is could be read as either a you know the author is dead we all have different sort of qualia you did kind of imagine him I, okay a couple different ways a yes you imagine him because he's actually a jerk and you were in love with him and you were young and you were blinded by the fact that you were love and young and in love and you didn't realize he was actually a jerk right and they didn't care about you right uh two is he real right um you imagine him to be a different person than he imagined himself to be Right. He had a different experience of the relationship than you did. Right. Three, he was gaslighting you and deliberately making you not trust your own experiences by belittling you and disagreeing with you about the basic facts of your experience in a way that doesn't really qualify as like, you know, Proustian Springsteenianism. Right. Where it's like, you know, the 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 this is Jake Gyllenhaal is now haunting a dusty beach road like the skeleton frame of a burnt out Chevrolet in this song under that particular reading. Right. 
um, where it's just like another one of those people, right? This is the idea that the reason that his memory is foggy is because he fogged it, right? And I think that all of those readings are in there. I mean, let me rephrase. I see all of them and I don't feel a particular need to like, I, I, I don't, the Swifties and Taylor Swift seem to have different perspectives on what's going on. And Taylor Swift seems more than happy to, to be okay with that. Right. Um, and so I'm okay with it too. The idea that this is a, a story that you can read in a variety of ways. Um, Mm. but, but there does seem to be a psychological, an element of psychological threat that is more present in the video than in the song, though. Maybe that's just because I didn't hear it in the song, even though it's maybe there. Um, are you also talking about thinking about the the final shot of the video where he's kind of creepily hanging out outside of the uh, what the, the book signing, the book reading event? Oh, yeah, sure. I was I was mostly thinking about like, oh, it's a scene in a kitchen where a couple are yelling at each other. Right. Which I've seen in like a bazillion movies. Right. And it's like, OK, you know, he's being scary. She's a child. Right? Like and this is really bad. Right. Yeah, right? Um, also that. Yeah. The kind of the looming physical presence. He, it he's, it's not only it's not only that he's older and has got like the facial hair. He's a solid like half foot taller yeah. than her. And it's exacerbated by the fact that it's the actress from Stranger Things, right? Who we all kind of recently saw playing an actual child, even though here she's playing a 20 year old. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know how old she actually is. Um, I think she's, she's all 19. Yeah. So she's a, but when we watched season one of Stranger Things, she was like probably like 15. Yeah, it's like that last season of Game of Thrones where Arya has the sex scene, and it's very disturbing for us to watch. <laughs> yes, exactly, oh, exactly. <laughs> Gendry, Should who we... would have thought that Donnie Darko wouldn't turn out to be like this great guy? Huh? Who would have watched Donnie Darko? Mysterio. Yeah, he plays so many trust. Uh, the the Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler guy he plays so many trustworthy characters. <laughs> oh man, it's only funny because it's sad. Um, but I don't know, Mark, did, is that what you got out of it too? Or did you get a different angle out of the video? Um, the, the, the menace piece, I think that we've, we've unspooled that out there was, uh, um, was kind of the most additive thing about it. It was all like, it, it was, it was very, very moody. It's a lot of, a lot of feelings, lots of feelings. I liked it. I did like it. I enjoyed it. I, I, I did like also the, the change in the sonic landscape um, that it provided. Um, uh, but maybe that was just the novelty kicking in and that's what I was resp- responding to. I think it was good Sonic Landscape. I thought, it, well, I mean, I, I wasn't surprised you liked it. It felt Springsteen-esque to me, the autumn version. I refer sure. to it as yeah, Taylor yeah, Swift's yeah. Nebraska, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it had this certain kind of like soulful-ish rock groove to it, right? It's um, got that, yeah, it's got the, the specificity that can also just be um, extrapolated into journalists. I mean, who among us have not blown up the chicken man in Philly last night? I mean, you know, we're, therefore, who among us? God go I to Atlantic City, right? <laughs> should should we talk about should we talk about Silk Sonic a little bit because uh, you know we're we're pretty much done with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, 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 we went to a pretty dark place there at the end. Let's let's go to speaking some, of. Let me offer a se- oh, sorry. Do you want to? Does anyone have a no, better segue? No, you go. You go. Spe- okay. I, was, I was teeing you up. Speaking of. Okay, so speaking. So let's talk. We're talking about love here, right? Um, I just watched the season finale of Foundation. I won't tell you guys anything about it because you didn't watch it. <laughs> Did not see that coming. Whoa. <laughs> but, okay. but in the se- season finale of Foundation, one of the characters turns to the other and says, uh, you know, if it weren't love, it wouldn't hurt. Right. Uh, Silk Sonic is the counter argument to this. possibility. <laughs> well, that's not entirely true. So here's the real segue. <laughs> right. Taylor Swift's work here is taking 
actual relationships, right? Like lovemaking that happened to specific people, right? And is transposing the perspective of us thinking about it to people later, right? So, so we're taking this event, right? The event exists crystalline in time, right? And it was interpreted at one point, and now it's being inter- reinterpreted at another point. The song is kind of being rediscovered at various points, right? And, but, but still in the middle is the same. It's still Jake Gyllenhaal. It's still Harry Styles. Everybody's still talking about it like these, these same guys. What Silk Sonic does is takes all the sex that people had from, like, 1971 to, like, 1983, <laughs> And, and just like decouples it from the specific people and treats it like one of those games in Price is Right, where like the price range can move up and down. And it's just like, what if all the sex that happened between 1971 and 1983 just sort of spiritually were to happen right now to us? Right. <laughs> it, it, it is not it is not a look back at like Isaac Hayes and Earth, Wind and Fire and and uh, early Michael Jackson and uh, Sly and the Family Stone and sort of reinvestigating what we think about those people. It's taking their perspective on things like lovemaking, being fly, roller skating, right? And <laughs> and, and sort of like and, and crystallizing that, right? It's like it's like the it's the tenor, not the vehicle, or the vehicle, not the tenor. I forget which one it is. It's the it's the it's the connotation, right? Not the denotation that that is being preserved. Um, it's, it's basically like, don't we still love to make love? Right. And, and there was a time, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No. Okay. Here's the thing. I mean, I feel like you're, you're responding mainly to the lyrics, right. To the general sort of the characters that they're playing and the kind of, I mean, I'm thinking of the, the, the sort of second full track of the album as fly as me, where the chorus goes, uh, I deserve to be with somebody as fly as me. And you deserve to be seen with somebody as fly as me, <laughs> right? So it's it's a silly, self-mocking take on yes. a particular era. But I, I feel like you have to juxtapose that with the, the musical. is stripped of the lyrics. The music is like, you know, they're really deeply investing. I mean, I, I was reading an article about how they, they were seeking out particular drum heads a particular kind of drums that are not uh common anymore to get like a very particular sound and they experimented with setting up the microphones in certain ways that like modern studios don't do and you know like the the um you know the 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 songs are obviously like you know deeply you know they're 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 pulling specific licks and quoting specific sort of like types of you know, instrumentation off of like, you know, these, these deep cuts. I mean, I, I I don't think there's any doubt that they are sincerely, you know, investigating and like, you know, really doing a PhD thesis in the musical output of a certain time. But then they're coupling that with like a lyrical take. That's like much more playful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, and so, and I think it's interesting to think about what those musical, uh, hooks and like uh, hooks is the wrong word because it's not just hooks, but all those musical elements, whether they're motifs, whether they're instrumentation, whether it's specific licks, you know, that are being repeated, specific styles we've all heard before. Uh, do those things? I, I I feel those things as coming forward with a connotation related to the thing that they were associated with before, as well. They don't come bereft of content. But at the same time, they're music. They're musically interesting, and it's being used creatively in a musical way as well as in a concept. So, okay, so here's an example, right? Like, there's this great sort of jam 
this great moment in this particular soulful style of music. You're going to have to be where, more specific. There's this great jam. Yeah, there's this great jam. <laughs> Narrow <it> down. <laughs> what, okay, so like glockenspiels, right? Aren't there like <laughs> like xylophones or glockenspiels? Or, or like, is it a triangle, a glockenspiel, or a, uh, a xylophone? Yeah, it's, it's a glockenspiel. And you're, yeah, you're correct, Pete. That this album is um, Chock-A-Block of Glock. Yes, it's Chock-A-Block of Glock. <laughs> it's the other side. The other thing that Springsteen brought to his grimy Jersey rock was the appreciation. That's right. The yeah, there's a connection. And this, of course, <laughs> takes the funk, the funky Glock, as it were. But like the Glockenspiel in sex-positive 70s R&B music, which sex-positive is even the wrong word for it because you're imparting a terminology that isn't appropriate to it, to me feels like it has this quality of light touch, joyful playfulness, Right, a, a sort of uh, the sort of bliss of Congress, right? That that there's all these <laughs> the feelings. Cong- I don't know. I would have. I I thought I would say th- I would have called the the sound of the Glockenspiel kind of piercing or assertive, like the voice of Fran Drescher. You know, that is <laughs> <laughs> that is to say, no, like that, that's what, in Born to Run. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons, yeah, fair enough. That one of the reasons that you would use a Glockenspiel in an arrangement like this is that it occupies a it it stakes out an area of sonic spectrum that is not occupied by the other instruments in the band by. The the like the you know by the strings or horns by any of the rhythm instruments it's it it is just it it kind of flies it flies over the top but it's sort of it 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 doesn't float you know what i mean it plunk it plunks but yeah okay it's uh it's the glockenspiel of congress uh for (laughs) sure another another notion right is that the idea is a glockenspiel is a very small and high-pitched xylophone made of metal right that's what a glockenspiel is for the most part yeah yeah. And so because the notes are so high and the metal is, you know, tuned very specifically to hit these very high notes, you don't have a lot of overtones in Glockenspiel. Right. So you have this big orchestration that might have trumpets or, or strings. Right. Like uh, and of course, tons of singers and drums and everything. And so there's this big, muddy, harmonic fullness to it. And then the Glock kind of comes through and is able to achieve this clarity because it's higher than all that and doesn't have the it doesn't have the uh, overtones, right? Uh, like so, so, so that's why it feels sort of clarion and and almost angelic um, in yeah, some of these situations because it's not taking up. You know, if you play a low note on the piano that is vibrating sympathetically and you hear the overtones really loud, that that low piano note is taking up a lot of sonic space. But, you know, because you hear it at an octave, at an octave and a fifth, at two octaves, the third, the fifth, the seventh, and, you know, and so on. You hear all that, all that kind of mush and, and you just hear less of it. It gets into inaudible sonic territory a lot quicker um, with, with the glockenspiel. Uh, but right. okay, you want to you want to make a point about the Glockenspiel, or was that the point about the? Well, the I knew another example. There's a song in this album that starts with basically love boat drums, mm. right? And my, I guess my question, I I know that it's a fault of mine in analyzing music that I'm always lyrics forward. I'm just I'm just a word guy. I always prioritize the lyrics more than I prioritize uh, the the other aspects of the music. So, but when I hear the like love boat esque drums, right? Or, or like like a, a sort of groove that's love boaty at the beginning of a song. I'm thinking it's about kind of smarmy lovemaking, right? And like in sort of like devil may care. We don't have to go to work, right? Like we're having a grand old time, you know, kind of uh, kind of vibe, right? Um, and, and that carries with it in the reference. And I guess the question then is like, what else is? It? I know it's carrying with it also a sort of meta 
musical logical and this is where we really wish that jordan were here uh, as the musicology professor right to tell us where it does what it's doing kind of meta musical musicologically um but what else is it bringing with it as a as a funk reference right as a disco reference um all of the other things that it's bringing along kind of is it is it one of those things where it's just a development of taste and the sort of and sort of blissful experimentation and creativity where these elements are being being played with and very very painstakingly and with a great deal of attention to well, detail. Yeah, it's that it's that painstaking quality and that attention to detail that I think I don't know is that was the important thing to me. Like what what I would call what I would say is that there's like a high variance in stakes or that there's ulteriority in in the stakes of of what's going on right because uh, maybe less so with the lyrics and that that's the kind of the variance the lyrics are um but, uh, i mean they're not silly but they're, they're there isn't any murphy nutty professor quote in there <laughs> it's just amazing i love it i love i mean so many of the lyrics are great the part where it's like i hope that all the good things you know happen to her in her life but i also hope that, that she's barefoot in the streets right like and I'm leaving out the, the, my the personal favorite was my personal favorite was the kids running around my crew of like it's some chucky e. cheese <laughs> which anyone who has children and has been to a chucky e. cheese like immediately <laughs> It's so evocative uh, to be smoking out the window. The idea that he's like feeling so like indignant and rebellious at this thing that she's done to him, but he also like can't smoke in his own house because it's her <laughs> house because <laughs> like, he's taking care of her kids. It's just it's just so great. Um, so I don't think the lyrics are bad, but they're very silly. Yeah, they're, uh, they're well, right, and so it's sort of low stakes, and and you'd think that like being in a way pastiche um the the music would would be similar but i i feel like that there is a, you know an aspect of kind of virtuosity to the music and the vocal performance which i you know i don't know it's it it elevates it right cuz it's not just it's not just pastiche it's like perfect pastiche it's uh, you know it's like um i don't know just just smooth and flawless and really you know, um, I mean, really like the best, the best exemplar, I, I, you know, I once read something where the chef Thomas Keller, the, the fancy chef, right. The, the super, uh, with all the super fancy, super expensive restaurants, uh, on the East and West coast, there's one in New York, I think it's called per se. And that, that like, uh, he, he would try to make a soup. If he made a carrot soup, he would want it to taste like more carrot than carrot. You know, and, and like, uh, you do that by what? Like, uh, by pureeing a lot of carrots and then like boil, removing water, like boiling it down a little bit and kind of like concentrating the flavor, concentrating the, the, uh, experience, right? Like, um, and then like manipulating the texture so that like nothing gets in the way of this, this pure hit of, of carrot, like more carrot than carrot. And like, to, I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm sure someone could find it, but it, this, this seems to me like more seventies than seventies. Like this, you know, this seems to me, I, I, maybe it's cause we weren't there, you know, like, and to us, the seventies is like grainy archival footage shot on 16 millimeter film with like faded colors, like, and a, you know, and like a, with a sepia wash over the uh, over the whole thing, and we can't see just how uh, just how grand, how beautiful uh, everything was, all the, all the colors and stuff like this in the seventies. But this is like the you know, I don't know. This is like to me like the Peter Jackson like eight K remastered forty eight frames a second, um, <laughs> you know, ver- version of the of the thing that it is, and that I think like the the 
craftsmanship, you know, and the kind of the pride in that, um, to do that, pull it off, make it seem so effortless and make it so fun. Like, I, I don't know. To me, there's something to that that is, that is pretty amazing. Um, that's a, a, an amazing accomplishment, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. So you also, Matt, you answered, um, you, you addressed the criticism that I brought up, um, um, only partially as devil's advocate or earlier for both, um, Taylor Swift's, uh, read Taylor's version and then this as well, too, which is right. Like, you know, why are these talented, musicians kind of retreading old stuff rather than using their prodigious talent to create new stuff and advance the art form forward. Um, we talked about Taylor Swift's reasons for doing that, both commercial and, um, and, and creative. Um, but in this instance here, like, l- let me, let me pause something here, which is that, um, like a very particular, like arc of the popular music art form was the fusion of jazz with, um, R and B and rock and like, uh, um, um, What's the best way to describe it? Like kind of like uh, jazz being kind of like a, a more complicated and technical art form was something that is a little bit that's, that's more accessible. Um, like all of that kind of had its apotheosis in this genre of music that is being paid homage to. Right. The kind of that soul R&B of the 70s and the early 80s. It, it, I mean, it is it sounds um elitist to say this but it kind of didn't get any better <laughs> than that yeah. um and the music went off and did different things um no- notably of course you know um with with, with hip hop um but nothing quite like that you know with that particular um set of constraints um and kind of you know uh, a sonic palette um and so the idea is like what is the artistic value of all this well it's like go back do this thing um uh, you know, create new songs, you know, they're the old style, sure, but new songs and do it amazingly well. Um, and for that, like, you know, I, I think that's why everybody recognizes that and, and why it is uh, by and large so well received, even though it is, yes, absolutely um, uh, very derivative of old stuff. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning that Bruno Mars uh, specifically has this is kind of his thing now, right? That I think when he when he first came on the scene like ten years ago, his original songs were just sort of pop songs, right? Like "Just the Way You Are" and "Grenade" and "Locked Out of Heaven," you know, and those were very contemporary sounding so- songs. But then recently, in recent years, the, the, I'm, I mean, I'm mainly thinking of a, technically not a Bruno Mars song, but "Uptown Funk," which is a Mark Ronson song. Where he is the he's the singer and he had it I believe he had a hand in the composition um, is a very retro infused song and has a very retro music video um, and then off of Bruno Mars actually hasn't released an album under his own name for five years but in his last album I think one of the big singles that like won a Grammy was Finesse which was a '90s like retro song and has a similar tone where it's like, if, if you guys want to Google like the, the, the cover of finesse, it's like, he's wearing like day glow, you know, colors. Um, you know, he's, he's dressed as like a parody of the nineties and it's like a similar project where he's, he's playing a character. He's, he's slipping into the nineties and, and trying to be exactly what, what, what rather was saying about Thomas Keller. He's being more 90s than 90s. And here he is coming back as Silk Sonic. And it's like he's playing, you know, more 70s than 70s. And it's almost like he is a chameleon who sort of like, you know, tries on these musical styles of the past and tries to like epitomize them 
Um, and I think it's honestly, it's a very interesting project. It sort of makes me wonder where where he's going next. Um, you know, is he is he gonna go is he gonna go older and start like a straight up like a doo-wop group, like reinvent the four seasons? Why he's um, going forward in time? He did the oh no, he's going backwards, 90s, 70s, yeah. So we're we're like fifties is where it's where it's gonna go next, you know. No, sixties, yeah. like Motown, like you know, kind of you know, really uh get that particular sweet spot. So another dimension of this, just to throw it on the pile, is um so okay, first of all, if you want to know just how intensely flavorful the carrot was, right? One video I watched with my son and we had a little dance party to earlier this week that I'd recommend watching for something of a of an aesthetic point of reference is the Let's Groove video by Earth, Wind and Fire, which came out in 1981. So this is later than a lot of the music that we're talking about. But like watch that there there's like multiple disembodied heads of a lead singer flying through space while as sparkling disco queen dances on a flower made of laser beams right like it's just it's it's very is this, uh, is this what you're exposing your child to pete uh, yeah I'm, at least I'm, I'm shocked <laughs> <laughs> you know i'd rather i'd rather he learn about quiet storms before he learns about firearms if that's okay with all of you <laughs> um, uh, but uh oh, but no oh. he actually is super into the justin timberlake song uh I got this. I got a feel. I got this. Uh, Can't stop the feeling, uh, and loves dancing to it. And so I've been looking for other songs that have a similar energy. And a lot of them are these sort of wedding-friendly funk, you know, soul R and B, you know, disco hits kind of things. But but thinking about that music, part of its distance, it's it's sort of relative distance from re- it's it's deliberate separation from reality in the way that its aesthetic is presented and also, uh, you know, the way it's produced, I think, sometimes in its subject matter. The one of the things that always kind of surprises me about this kind of music and not just Earth, Wind and Fire, but everything Silk Sonic is talking about is that when people sit down to talk about it, they talk about the parts that are so serious. Right. So like when people talk about Marvin Gaye, they talk about his commitment to social justice. They talk about his tragic death. Right. But you don't talk about boning very much as much. Right. Not anymore. Mm. Um, like, and, uh, like Thomas Keller, like removing the bones from a, a filet of soul or uh, I'm actually talking about sitting down and watching the David Boreanaz and uh, whatever the other. Oh, bones. Days. Yeah. Boning. Yeah. yeah bones. And, watching and Emily bones. Deschanel. Yeah. I'm actually talking about the Snoop Doggy Dog horror movie Bones. Uh, no, no, no. But but you know what I mean? Like like the idea that the song is both important and about fun, celebratory love. Right. Those two things aren't separate from each other, I think, in the experience of the song. In South Park, we have, of course, Chef, who is doing something that is very distinctly different than what Silk Sonic is doing, which is calling out the sex as the weird thing, right? Look just how sexual this music is. It's incredibly sexual, right? It's very, it's very like concerned with like sweat and sweaty balls and, and chocolate salty balls and whatnot. And all that other nonsense. Uh, that's a direct quote. That's not me improvising. But but the point is that in this in this kind of music, the celebratoriness and the 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 parliament funkadelic, you know, separation from reality were juxtaposed against uh, real you know struggle, both you know economically and socially, with you know black people post Great Migration and post Civil Rights Movement right into the sort of black power movement, trying to deal with cultural erasure and trying to establish themselves as strong and and vibrant, you know, living cultural people. Like if you go back and watch 
the old uh, the James Baldwin documentary, right? I am not your Negro, which um, came out a couple years ago. He one one of the things he talks about is about the stereotypes that he experienced growing up of black men, which is that they were emasculate, right? Which feels, I think, very foreign to us, right? As as the idea that that would be how they would be presented, because when we grew up, Isaac Hayes had already happened, right? Um, and, and it's not like, you know, they, it was, it was a different sort of stereotype. There had been a reclamation that had taken place and all the stuff about laser beams and disco dancing and stars and magic is partly to try to fill the void of cultural erasure. I mean, that's at least what my college professor said about it, right? The idea of Afrofuturism, the sort of orientation with space and ancient Egypt, right? And all this, and, and all this stuff is about dealing with a, really volatile moment in the cultural identity of a particular group of people that have produced this tradition of art. And, and so, and, and, and this, the fact that it is about, you know, love, so much of it is about love and lovemaking, right. And everything that's, that's tawdry and lesser, but still beautiful because the glockenspiel demands it. Right. Um, all that stuff is because it's music that's supposed to be popular and has to be popular and it has to it has to speak to human experience and, and connect with its audience in order to anybody to give a damn about it. Right. So Silk Sonic, I think, has a similar sort of thing going on where the art, the artistry and the craft of it in reproducing a lot of these old licks is reaching to this sort of stratosphere of separation. But the thing that Silk Sonic is separating from isn't cultural tumult, but it's physical alienation. And I think that it's worth saying this is an evening with Silk Sonic. The whole thing is presented as if it's a concert that you're at. And so many of the songs are about people talking in person or wanting to be next to each other. And I do think that this it feels to me like a sort of anti-counter-quarantine song, right? That this is a song about, I mean, what what is what is the bigger transgression in the age of COVID than leaving your door open so a random person can come over to your house, Right. Right. Like what kind of fantasy is this that it's like, oh, we're not we're not just living virtually anymore. My pool is warm. My apartment is clean. Right. Um, you know, the uh, th this all this stuff about uh, about, well, even even the sort of I'm with your kids in your house and you're out with everybody. You belong to she belongs to everybody is a great line. Right. Um, because it's empowering and also devastating and also a horrible insult, right? Like, uh, I thought she belonged to me, but she belongs to everybody. Right. Um, uh, and, but, but yeah, just, just that to me, Silk Sonic's sort of vaunted separation from reality is about read is like searching for a same sort of gap. And that gap is, is, is physical connection to other people. Um, and that's why it's funny because it's really strange that, that should be a gap. Right. That that's something that we don't have right now. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it gets away with being so funny, I think. Um, but that's but also because the because Mark, the reason that this is the end of that kind of music is because you get prints. Right. And you get the synthesizers coming in. The idea being that like one person can make a whole album. Right. You don't need a big band on stage sweating oh, it out. That's good. Yeah. You know, to like that because that's the big change. Right. Is that you have. You have the um, the R and B. You have the soul. You have Motown. You have gospel, right? And you have this sort of African music, and they all kind of come together, and they they create funk, and they create like you know kind of modern pop music, and and all this sort of uh, urban contemporary stuff that precedes hip hop. And then there are these sort of big moments where it's like Prince, Stevie Wonder. I made the whole album myself. I played all the instruments. Yes, I have a band, but the but the work isn't about a band, right? And, right. and furthermore, and in the case of like, hip hop, in the case of hip hop, you just sample 
I'm yeah. just, I'm not saying to is, belittle it, but you sample, you take a pre-recorded thing, and then you do something on top of that. Yeah, and that's yeah, not yeah, to yeah, diminish yeah. it, but it's a different tradition, right? It's like yes. there's there's yeah, yeah, a, there's yeah, yeah. a change, like the train jumps the tracks, right? To quote funk mistress uh, Natasha Bedenfield, is that her name? <laughs> it's it's a, they're like cars on a cable. Uh, I think that's the wrong the wrong songstress. But anyway, uh, that's what I was suggesting is that like the, these sort of big sweaty bands stop being commercially necessary once the production technique advances to the point where you can fill out all the instrumentation on an album using like either a small number of musicians um, or even just like session musicians, right? It's already at a point where it's sort of obsolete. Um, uh, you, not everybody's using the James Brown model of just traveling with your whole band, right? Um, so anyway, sorry, I, I went off a little bit on that. I connected with Sonic, with Silk Sonic. I keep calling it Sonic Silk, but I connected with Silk Sonic a little bit more with Taylor Swift. So um, I do apologize for going off on it. So, a little Sonic bit. Silk is what the bed sheets are made out of. <laughs> if you're a bat, right? <laughs> Do you know? While I I, I, I listened to this album a bunch of times, I've been putting it on repeat. It's great. That's um, not what you have to say. And here's the deal. Um, it, I I felt like there was a song that it was really reminding me of, like a song from like a decade ago that that I felt was like a pre like a John the Baptist to this album. And it finally occurred to me there's a Bruno Mars song from before Bruno Mars's first album, a song that he wrote for somebody else. And I can't say the name of it because it is a Chili Pepper, but it's a Cielo Green song. <laughs> that is that is the clean version is Forget You. And it has a retro instrumentation with like, you know, a sort of like a, a chorus doing the doo-ops in the background and the sort of live band cooking it. And the lyrics are very silly, right? Um, what is it? Like, I guess he's an Xbox and I'm more of an Atari, but the way you play your game ain't fair. It's sort of like a <laughs> like a retro sort of self-mocking, you know, there's like a lot of uh, references. Um, and I feel like that, that, part of so so i guess what i'm just saying is like silk sonic was always there inside Bruno mars and he was like a, a a mode that that he always had that you know wasn't his original sort of like a performer persona but he's finally sort of circling back to 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 that uh you know that that style that sort of retro silliness um and i'm happy for him and then, uh, then ABBA is, uh, I, I think, uh, with ABBA, what all we can say about it is that, uh, what Pete said earlier, you listen to ABBA and you say, wow, these guys were fans of Andrew Lloyd Webber. But then you realize that Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> yeah. was a fan of ABBA. <laughs> three albums, three whole <laughs> albums, only, only 900. 97 to go all right we'll uh we'll leave the conversation there but thanks very much for listening and thanks very much to matt to pete and to mark for uh talking about red taylor's version about an evening with silk sonic and and uh however briefly about abba's voyage uh love to hear what you think about uh these records in the um and the comments on the show notes are in the Discord, which is uh, lively and fun and a great place for, for you know, uh, people who listen to the podcast to uh, to chat um, together. Well, people who make and listen to the podcast to, to chat together. We'll be back uh, next week with more Overthinking a Podcast, uh, the 700th episode of the show. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.
Thank you.